What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. The old world is dying. The new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. Uh, with those words, which are a rough paraphrase of a sentiment expressed by Gramsci, uh, I welcome you to the Time of Monsters podcast. In this uh, previous episode, uh, we've taken up the issue of the uh, pink tide um, in Latin America and uh, one of the more hopeful developments in the world um, where uh, uh, for the first time in a wide swath of the Western Hemisphere, uh, you know, at least south of the uh, border, uh, you have uh, left of uh, center governments. Um, and uh, I want to return to that uh, with perhaps um, a greater focus on uh, Central America um, and also the sort of relationship um, uh, that the United States has had historically had with the region, uh, and uh, 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 often a very terrible relationship, but perhaps one that can, is subject to change. Uh, and I'm very happy to have um, here uh, Jeffrey Gould, uh, who's a distinguished visiting professor at the Institute for Advanced Studies, uh, which is at Princeton, uh, but uh, I've been told under pain of severe punishment, <laughs> I'm not to say is uh, is part of Princeton University, uh, although th there's, there's some nebulous overlap. Uh, but uh, the, uh, and uh, uh, also joining us is uh, the frequent uh, co-host, uh, Doug Bell. Uh, so uh, Jeffrey is a widely published uh, scholar and uh, documentary filmmaker. Um, has written uh, widely uh, about the region, uh, particularly Nicaragua and El Salvador, about um, uh, issues like the uh, liberation theology movement and union organizing, and uh, um, in particular, uh, very um, interesting documentary and film uh, uh, called Solidarity Under Siege, the Salvadorian Labor Movement, 1970 to 1990. Um, so, as we know, like, you know, like issues of um, the, um, uh, things that happen south of the American border do impinge upon America, especially uh, as it relates to immigration. And the um, uh, uh, there's a lot of discussion of, you know, like the origins of the migrations that are coming in, uh, particularly as they might be rooted in the sort of bloody civil wars of the region and also more recently climate change. Uh, but I, I thought Jeffrey um, is a good person to bring on uh, just um, in terms of some of that history, uh, some of which will be very familiar to listeners, but perhaps he has a different angle on it. And in, in particular, um, I was interested in his work um, in uh, locating sort of moments of hope 
uh, within this history, which is often, you know, from the outside seen as a very dark and uh, bloody history of uh, moments that he calls like little utopias, um, where there is sort of grassroots social movements um, that do uh, uh, push for something very different and, and do create, uh, at least on a local level, uh, very different things. And um, perhaps one unexpected sort of uh, um, little utopia, or this is possible moment of change uh, that he um, talks about in his book, uh, Solidarity Under Siege, uh, is in the late 1970s in El Salvador. Uh, so do you want to like maybe talk about that, set the stage for a little bit about how uh, there's actually a lot of interesting union activism uh, in, El, uh, in El Salvador and, and a possibility that the life, that the political right could have been uh, shunted to the, the corner? Okay, sure. Um, thanks for inviting me on this. Uh, let me just back up just a little bit a few years earlier, because I think um, in even, you know, brighter hope um, that that later was extinguished, uh, came about in northern Morazan uh, in, in El Salvador, uh, a fairly remote area, even though it's a small country. Uh, and in that area is where um, liberation theology really blossomed uh, quite a bit, so that um, a fairly substantial chunk of the population began to organize themselves uh, and essentially try to recreate uh, early Christian communities. And part of that sort of birth of these new communities involved uh, notions of um, kind of full-fledged equality and, de and democracy. I mean, they obviously had limits, and part of the limits were, on the one hand, you had a military regime who wasn't too thrilled with what they were doing. And on the other, you had other um, peasants who were apathetic at best. But within, within those uh, confines, there were these communities that, that um, were extremely um, successful uh, in terms of being able to survive on their own and, and their mobilizing capacity. Uh, without getting into a lot of details about that, uh, as repression uh, tightened around the country, uh, a lot of these um, activists became more um, radicalized, became more politicized, and eventually became a bastion of support for a guerrilla movement. Um, so, you know, that's one part of what, you know, I've referred to with this term, which is a uh, borrowed from an historian, Jay Winter, minor utopias. I'm not necessarily wedded to it by any means, but what I am suggesting are there are these moments in which um, kind of ordinary peasants and workers take control of their uh, communities and workspaces and are able to um, operate them on their own with kind of a mystique of uh, mystique of, of equality. Um, and you know there, there there are limits to it in terms of gender equality, but but there's there's definitely a far more uh, far more egalitarian society than, than anything around them, uh, for sure. So in terms of the labor movement, um, I think it's important to realize that at that time the Salvadoran labor movement, despite being under a military regime, was um, proportionately um, right after Brazil, the most militant uh, in the hemisphere. And by, you know, if you're defining militancy, especially in terms of taking over, uh, taking over factories. So the workers 
took them over. Um, they often did it as a defensive mechanism because during a typical strike, uh, death squads tied to the military could come by and just bump people off. Um, but when they took over the factories, they take over the factories and often have hostages. And the hostages were get their guarantee for their lives. Um, and th this, this tactic, a um, very militant one, um, also um, led to this greater and greater um, collective sense of control over the factories and their communities. And again, it was sort of injected a kind of um, real uh, kind of living, uh, a living radicalism, this kind of uh, germ of what a new society would be, even if in, under this extreme, um, extremely harsh regime. So that, I mean, just to, to follow through with that, uh, on October 15th, 1979, in part because the, um, the sections of the military feared that just as Nicaragua had experienced a revolution in July of that year, that the re there could be a revolutionary outcome in uh, El Salvador due to this extreme militancy and growth of the labor and peasant movement. So they staged what, what was a which was viewed by the left, by the revolutionary left, left as essentially a, a counterinsurgent or demobilizing coup. Um, but there was a period, uh, a couple of weeks after the triumph of, uh, after the success of that coup, uh, in which there was essentially a truce that took place um, between. Uh, the military, um, the right was kind of backed into a corner, uh, and there were sectors of the, of the new government which were, you know, considered themselves to be part of the left. And they um, instituted certain um, socioeconomic measures which were very favorable, particularly to the rural poor. Uh, they halted all repression. Uh, and so during that period of time, there was a tremendous expansion of the uh, of the rural labor movement uh, and in a continued expansion of the urban labor movement. And there was this moment really when there was a possibility of some you know, dramatic change that would, uh, that would uh, avoid a civil war. Uh, and the, the other key ingredient of that was the US at point under Carter um, had no appetite for a military intervention. So there was this moment and um, it didn't last very long, you know, five weeks, uh, five or six weeks. And during that period of time, the, the right continued to um, um, mobilize within inside and outside of the military. Because part of the thing that I didn't mention was that the people who took over, which included, you know, a, a sort of a mildly left wing military guy, and um, moderate leftists, uh, leftist civilians, that they were able to um, push out some 60 um, high-level military uh, officers who were guilty of human rights abuses and there are massive human rights abuses. Uh, and they were able to get them out of, of the military. And this kind of threw, you know, the, the Threw the right off guard. I mean, they were they really were um, they were momentarily immobilized, and so there was this opportunity. 
that yeah. didn't. Yeah, I just wanted to, to go on that uh, point a little bit because I think there's something that maybe people in North America aren't quite as familiar with. But uh, yeah. in Latin America and elsewhere, uh, uh, there is a kind of tradition of sort of uh, left-wing military coups of having junior officers who align themselves um, uh, with more progressive elements of society. Sure. Uh, sure. And so, so it is not like totally um, uh, out of the question that you could have had that and uh, to just follow up on that, uh, your kind of suggestion is that the the sec, um, the more radical left made a real mistake in not trying to, I guess, maybe make an alliance or seize the opportunity that they had sort of um, rejected it out of hand. Uh, and, well, it's it's a it's a bit more, and just to follow yeah. through on the progressive, the other famous case is um, is uh, Peru in 1968. Yeah, there there was a progressive military coup there. Um, but in terms of the El Salvadoran case, I mean, I think that, you know, I don't want to overstate it because sure. I think part of the problem is that the revolutionary left had been, you know, fighting um, generally uh, without arms uh, in, in, you know, leading these, you know, what one can think of as heroic movements, uh, factory and, and, and uh, peasant movements. Uh, and their understanding of society uh, was um, fairly sharply um, dichotomous. I mean, that, 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 you know, you had the capitalist class allied with the U.S. And um, it, was, it, it was hard to envision at that point for them anything but a revolutionary solution. Um, and so... They, you know, they had a, a high level of suspicion of this new government, and their their rhetoric, you know, their 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 terms of the ways in which they understood society, made it made it very difficult for them to understand that this government was actually capable of, to some degree, working with them, um, and. You know, it, it was complicated by the fact that the government was not uniform. It wasn't completely cohesive. It still had uh, really nasty elements within it. Uh, and, you know, there just wasn't time, I think, just the, 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 the way in which um, time was experienced, uh, you know, the kind of revolutionary sense of time. Everything's moving super fast. They're just, it just, I think, they're, they're, you know, the, the revolutionary left, I don't want to heap the blame on it because ultimately, you know, the problem was you had a homicidal right, <laughs> which the U.S. tolerated. So between a degree of blindness on the revolutionary left and the homicidal right, I don't, I think, you know, the revolutionary left can be excused for not, not kind of stepping into that, uh, trying to forge an alliance when it wasn't at all clear that that would have made a difference because the military still, there were sectors of the military which still would have lashed out. I mean, there's no question um, that that those people were not com contained. Um, so I want to just follow up on but a, a bit, um, uh, but so when the right 
elements of the military were kind of pushed out of the more uh, horrific human rights abusers. Like, am I right in understanding that they start to organize outside the military and that this is um, uh, uh, sort of the genesis of uh, the sort of like paramilitary death squads or the, um, the, that's what I sort of got, but uh, well, I think, that, I think that those death squads are, are, are intensified. Yeah. They already existed yeah. um, for sure. And the death squads were inside and outside in the military. I mean, the lines were very, um, were-, were um, Porous. Yeah, they were definitely porous and fuzzy. Yeah. No question about that. Um, and so, yes, it certainly got intensified. And you had, you know, very famous case like the person, uh, da- Davison, Roberto Davison, who is the, uh, he had been in the military and kind of within the intelligence in the military. and and he moves outside and becomes like the head of the death squads um, and, and, you know, and then becomes an important politician uh, in El Salvador as well. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so, I mean, yeah, there's like a, a kind of a period of reaction uh, and uh, um, as you say, very porous links between, you know, uh, paramilitary, the military and the political class. Um, and a very sort of violent counter-revolution, which was uh, supported by the United States. Uh, the um, Now, from your work, how much of that, like, uh, obviously they were reacting against the left and what they saw perceived as the threat of a radical left revolution. Um, to the extent it can be distinguished, it also seemed like that this was like a sort of counter-revolution against the union organizing that had happened in the 70s at the you know the period where there was a lot of um real gains like a, a, is that like a distinct part of this or is this all like one big uh uh, uh push against the, the left um i'd say well first of all i wanted to back up a little bit about the us because the us um the us is is fairly um wishy-washy under Carter. Mm-hmm. I mean, they go back and forth between, uh, you know, condemning condemning the military regime before the October 15th coup, um, backing, um, and then backing a subsequent government, which comes out of the October 15th. J- just to make that point a little clear, um, this first government, which has the most possibility in terms of uh, a reformist agenda, <clears throat> ends by the end of December when it becomes clear that the, that the military right was back in charge. And so the civilian left resigns. Uh, and then there's subsequent iterations uh, of it over the next year. And so the US backs these new iterations, which uh, very much uh, aligned with the military. But then by the end of December of 1980, after a year of just you know massive death squad killings, um, the, uh, these folks, um, in the famous episode, uh, murder, rape and murder, you know, three American nuns and a religious worker. And that is too much for the Carter administration to bear. So they, you know, at the very end of the administration, at the end of 1980, they break off, basically break off relations. And the ambassador, um, Robert White, uh, continues in his post as Reagan, the Reagan administration takes office uh, in January 1981. 
And so they, it's he he symbolizes the dramatic shift under Reagan, because I don't know whether this is well known or not, but um, but uh, Alexander Haig uh, called him up and basically says to him, "Hey, we want to we I want to report on your desk, uh, telling that of the progress that the military has made in investigating the murder of the nuns." And uh, Robert White responds, uh, well, I can't do that, sir. Um, the military is not going to investigate itself. Uh, and, and Haig says, what are you talking about? Well, the military did this. And no, that's not possible. And so, you know, White's out of a job. Um, and, you know, that pretty much sums up the, the shift in policy, which becomes completely aligned with, you know, with the military. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I, 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 and I think that's something that uh, perhaps a lot of listeners will be very familiar with the sort of, you know, 1980s Reagan uh, uh, policy, especially with people like Elliot Abrams, uh, totally backing and whitewashing uh, the, the military. So, so again, um, uh, just as a historian or, you know, fan of uh, history, uh, I'm very interested in your uh, emphasis on sort of contingency and possibilities of things going elsewhere. So that you mm -hmm. think that, you know, even under, Carter, where there was a kind of back and forth that there was like, you know, possibility of the United States going in a different uh, direction. I mean, that's, that's been a question that I've, that, that I've thought about because um, there was this, it's funny because at the time it was this, you know, horrific, uh, horrific notion um, or, or people on the left thought of it as this terrible thing that, the, what was it called? The um, trilateral was it the Trilateral Organization? The Trilateral Commission, wasn't it? Trilateral, Trilateral yeah, Commission, yeah. right. Yeah. So, so at some point when I was teaching a class, I, I looked into it and I was kind of amazed to see that out of the Trilateral Commission, there, there was a, they issued some document which pretty much said, you know, the U.S. needs to uh, come to grips with uh, revolutionary nationalism around the world. And we're just going to have, you know, we're, we'd be much better off learning to live with it or learning to work with it or something like that, which was, now that didn't, that wasn't the Carter policy, but it was at least a minor, minor part of it. There were people within the Carter administration who shared an outlook like that. Yeah, well, I mean, it does seem like there was a sort of elite uh, divisions in the United States uh, about Central America in the 70s and uh, early 80s. And even like going into the 80s, where like, you know, the Democratic Congress at, at key points did mount a significant opposition uh, to some of what Reagan was doing. And, and I guess you also see that in the sort of, was it the Kissinger report that tried to kind of um, uh, whitewash uh, uh, stuff that was happening there, and and I think there was yeah. a lot of elite criticism, or there was like um a lot of uh uncertainty. So I, I think that's a very um useful and refreshing aspect of your work to to emphasize that you know like not 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 that things did go another way, but that, that there was always a possibility, or there was a there were um uh, more divisions than one would think. Um, Doug, did you uh, want to interject? Yeah, I just just slightly off the side. I I I'm interested to know whether. And uh, a lot of uh, Jeff's work, there's there's a, a an emphasis on the idea of extra parliamentary, uh, grassroots uh, uh, efforts on the left, of which you know that episode in in El Salvador, uh, I believe it was El Salvador, is is the is the quintessence. I'm just wondering whether on there's any sense that on the left, 
uh, in as we're sort of entering the contemporary period, that there's some sort of residual memory of this event, or I mean, not to say that like it was like Barcelona or something for the for the for the European left, but but is there some sense among particularly among people uh, on the left with with a background in labor like Lula that this was a sort of a moment? Uh, mm-hmm. And that there's, it, 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 in other words, is there any kind of re- residue of that uh, in the in the in the in the debates and discussion on the left in Latin America? I mean, I, I would say, in, in terms of the, you know, the Latin America as a whole, yes, I, I think it, the answers in, in in Central America are 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 more um, more. It's a bit more problematic there, but in terms of the left writ large, I think you can even see that in, um, in say, the protests in Chile in in, in two thousand nineteen. I mean, there was a direct uh, call back, a, a, a sort of direct reflection on the Allende period. Um, there was direct, um, you know, it's not about thirty cents; it's about thirty years. Um, but I mean that 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 was actually referring to more recent thirty years. But there but there were there really was an attempt to kind of recover um, something something from the Allende period. I think um, in the case of um, Lula, I mean there's no doubt that you know he's extremely proud of his labor roots. That he he during his pre- previous administrations. He worked with the main labor confederation, but at the same time, that that confederation was becoming more and more, you know, centrist. It itself had been transformed along along with Lula in terms of politically and moving moving much more to the center. Um, in terms of what happens in Central America, and this this may be well. It, other than Honduras, which is which is always the special exception, there is no longer any pink tide in in, in uh, Central America. I mean, you had it for sure. I mean, one could look at you know the period two thousand six to two thousand ten or whatever, uh, or maybe even later. You could think of yeah. You could even go further that this is a pink tide. You had left you had left wing governments in. Um, Nicaragua, uh, El Salvador, uh, the, the the FMLN, the former guerrilla organization, um, won the presidential elections in two thousand and nine and stayed in until I think two thousand nineteen. Um, they they you know won two elections and then of course Nicaragua Ortega comes back. So you so you could see that, but the, there's a real um, a change. Um, in those parties, yeah, the both outgrowths of guerrilla movements, and and the change, the, the key moment of that change, um, well, I think there are two there are two key moments. One is the, the broad sweep of what it meant to be a political military organization. I mean, these were after all uh, movement parties that grew out of movements that essentially were military, um, and so all that all that connected to any military in terms of chain and command uh, authority and so on, that's never really challenged. And that certainly during the Sandinista revolution, um, when the Sandinistas were in power, that was always a tension. Um, there was something 
you know, they're, they're, you know, at the end of any meeting, however democratic, however inspiring a community meeting, uh, uh, a peasant assembly, uh, at the end of it, people would always, you know, you, people would shout, um, Dirección Nacional Ordene, the national directorate orders it, you know, and people would do it smiling, whatever. Who knows exactly what that meant, but that was a line, you know. Right. First time I heard it, I thought people were being funny, but no, not not entirely funny. Um, so there, there's always that, you know, there's, there's that side to it. Um, so you have that kind of authoritarianism, which kind of is there, is present in, in, in the origins and development of, a, of a, those two main organizations. I'm talking about the, the FSLN, the Sandinistas and, and FMLN in El Salvador. Um, and so that doesn't really get challenged in the 1990s. You have this wave, uh, you know, as everyone I'm sure is aware, you know, part of, I guess, what you could call the kind of neoliberal thrust, the Washington consensus, um, that that involves um, that involves certainly an emphasis on democracy. In terms of formal electoral democracy, that's accepted by all the players, you know, including the left. But it doesn't really penetrate those organizations per se. And that's that in passing is the the, the you know the the crucial moment in in the development of the FSLN because there was uh, you know a party congress in 1994 uh, and in that party congress Ortega is able to uh, kind of steamroll um, his way through probably I you know the truth be told he probably would have won a completely democratic vote of all the uh, Sandinistas, uh, of which there were, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands. But um, at the same time, that did nothing to continue. There was no continued process of democratization. Once he won the internal power struggle, he just uh, was in complete control. And then with the other section of the Sandinistas, um, a particularly famous one who's now rotting in prison, prison Dora Maria Tellas, um, that the problem that they had, they 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 created a, a another Sandinista organization, which I think they called the Movimiento Renovador Sandinista, or, or so, some version of that. And they, um, but one of the things that happened to both branches of Sandinismo, the, the dominant one under Ortega, but also the dissonant one, who had you know tremendously uh, important people in it, but. They weren't, you know, they all pretty much accepted um, this new neoliberal rationality. Right. And that I think is true for a moment, you know, throughout Latin America, but, but particularly in Nicaragua and El Salvador, where you still have this left and the left ends up winning presidential elections, but they accept this rationality. One aspect of it, which was particularly striking to me, was they pretty much um, jettisoned uh, any notions of land reform. Uh, and I, I can remember one particularly um, telling moment for me. I was doing research in this uh, indigenous area of Western El Salvador uh, in the late 90s, uh, where, where the left had actually won, um, you know, won some elections back then. 
which were historic because this is the place where the military had executed some 10,000 uh, campesinos, mostly Indians in 1932. And here they were, you know, back winning municipal offices and congressional seats and so on. So anyway, I'm doing research and I noticed that because of, of climate change, the, um, the coffee area, which, you know, maybe, you know, 40 or 50 years ago, you could grow coffee at 800 meters. Um, but by the late 90s, uh, you know, as a minimum altitude. Um, and by the late 90s, uh, you couldn't anymore. You, you had to be much higher. So there, so was the, there was this swath of terrain, which was made up of abandoned coffee plantations, but it was still all privately owned. And yet there was nothing being done. And then next to them, you had these uh, Indian villages in which people had no access to land and they had no work. So I remember just in, 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 in conversation, talking with people at different levels of you know, the, the, the FMLN, like, hey, why don't you guys do something about this? I mean, Jesus Christ, you know, this is ridiculous. You have all this abandoned land and people can't use it. What's, and and uh, you know, pretty much the answer uh, was uh, no, you know, we don't deal with the land reform. I mean, there are different versions of that. Um, one of it had to do probably with um, something in the peace treaty of 1992 that brought the civil war to an end. Um, but another aspect was more ideological slash theoretical. And that was that, you know, starting with the World Bank, I mean, who had promoted land reform for years, but starting in the 1990s, I think all around the world, not just in Latin America, the World Bank uh, shifted gears and basically said, you know, land reform is passe, it's all about decentralization, whatever the hell that ever meant. And uh, that, that was accepted by the Central American left and other parts of the left in Latin America as well, which to me is still, you know, mind boggling, but it's, it was something that I certainly, you know. Yeah, yeah let's flesh that out because I, I do think the sort of triumph of neoliberalism um, seems very significant uh, in your work and uh, in, in the history that we're talking about. And um, so, um, I, I, I mean, I guess uh, in um, Solidarity Under Siege, um, perhaps the example of that is like uh, uh, both the sort of divisions between the two unions. Uh, the, you know, the uh, you're talking about a port city that has shrimp, and there's um, uh, shrimp workers and factories and fishermen, and and the union right. disorganized. And then, but also, I thought in the previous talk you had given what was very interesting was that there was a kind of like um, as workers were prepared to sort of you know take control, there's a kind of like a theft. Um, uh, basically bank fraud uh, and financialization to like yeah. shut everything down. And but but you sort of say that that's not like um, the unions prefer to fight amongst themselves rather than see this 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 crime as like the source of their problem. Do you want to talk about well, that? Like, is well, that... I mean, it, it the way I understood it was that I think in looking back, people who worked in the port then tend to be more inclined to blame the other union. Yeah. Um, but at the time, I think this fraud was, was somewhat um, 
obfuscated. It was it was not really uncovered and it uh, got uncovered in bits and pieces. So what happened then was that the um, the bank took it over, uh, took took over the uh, the shrimp enterprise. And there was a moment in which they could have, uh, because of some laws which were on the books, which backed the, the shrimp fishermen who had been on strike for a number of years. So because they had been on strike legally, they were owed all this back pay. And so with that back pay and other, um, and other indemnifications, they were able, they would have been able to purchase, legally purchase this, this operation. But there, the level of hostility between the two uh, unions, one, you know, based partly on gender because the uh, plant workers were, were mostly women, but also because of their ideological roots, because the plant workers were, were historically tied to the left and the fishermen were tied to the, to the Christian Democratic Party or the center, like that, that did not, <laughs> didn't, that didn't happen. They, 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 they couldn't, they, they couldn't come together uh, on it. Yeah. So that was, you know, a local version of how, in the end, you know, the, that that particular area became deindustrialized. Okay. So this is a kind of a big question, but um, uh, maybe if you you start describing a situation where the pink tide, yeah, is kind of very weak in Central America as against yeah. uh, 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 South America, and if you had to give like what would Say three reasons, the three top reasons, you know, <laughs> why it's uh, uh, why the pink tide is so weak in Central America. What what, what would they be? Well, I think I talked about one: the ideological, the the, the strong ideological transformation um, of the left in um, really in 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 all of Central America. Um, that is kind of the neoliberalization of the left on the one hand, but without an attendant democratization of, of, of the party structures. So I think that that's that's certainly um, a major component of why um, of why that the left has failed. Uh, there, each country has a different, you know, slightly different story. So in Guatemala, the left was was eviscerated. Um, you know, not just militarily, but also politically and ideologically, um, not just for the reasons I just said, but also because the um, indigenous movement, the Mayan movement grew, uh, was born and grew partly in, in response to the failings of the left in the 1980s. I mean, that, that's a much more complicated, that'd be worthy of a long discussion in and of itself. But in part, it's that ethnic division and, and this kind of uh, the, the left's perceived culpability in the 1980s um, that uh, conditions the growth of the one important social movement in Guatemala, uh, pretty much at the expense of the left. So that, that's, um, that's a separate reason. So, um, but I think the, the, the biggest really have to do with um, you know, that political reason and then structurally the transformations uh, in Central America, um, you know, including basically the two main um, structural transformations uh, 
include uh, the maquilas, uh, the, 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 the tremendous growth of maquila industries uh, throughout Central America. And those, as opposed to the industries that existed before, um, are notoriously difficult to organize. And so you have this new, you know, brand new um, potential base of support, which is, you know, some, you know, one can almost say is impenetrable, except I think it's also important to note that when the left was in power, as far as I can tell, uh, they did nothing to um, make organizing anything like a level playing field. They just avoided it, mm -hmm. uh, which is, you know, to me, like, at you know criminal negligence um now so so you know, but that structural transformation of you know on the one hand you have maquilas and then the other uh the other kind of axes of the new economies in central america are you know tourism and uh and getting remesses remittance remittances from the from the states and you know it's just a you know it's a, it's a major shift so that the agro-export economies that existed before uh, really, I mean, they exist, but they're kind of a, like a faint echo of what they were before. And I guess, ironically, the agro-export economies really did fuel the development of a much more organic left back in the 60s and 70s. Okay, no, that, that's very uh, um, uh, interesting. And I think uh, uh, on that point of like remittances and the sort of uh, ties, um, uh, between um, uh, the United States uh, and uh, Central America. I mean, I think one thing that came out in your documentary is that so many of the people who are union activists, um, uh, the ones that survived sort of fled to the United States or Canada. And um, uh, so is there a sense in which like the immigration is a safety valve or, you know, is a... Uh, um, uh, um, uh, yeah, is is a a way in which um, um, uh, union activism gets displaced or you know pushed out of society. Yeah, I mean, I think in certainly in in the eighties, I guess one of the you know kind of bitter ironies of the whole thing is that one of you know the you know the United States, which to a serious degree is responsible for the horrors in El Salvador, which are in Central America, which are driving people uh, out of their homes. You know the one place which seems, you know, the place to go is the United States, right? And so, so I think there, you know, there's a lot, there are a lot of uh, of refugees at the time. Most of them are not st strictly political, though a lot were. And of course, as I'm sure most people know, the U.S. never considered them to be political refugees because we are, of course, allied with their democratic government, right? Unlike in Nicaragua at the time. So, um, so yeah, I mean, there's no question that the war is, you know, very much tied to the roots of roots of immigration, and then you add, you know, the Washington consensus and neoliberalism in the 1990s, and you definitely have a recipe for disaster. Um, yeah, Doug, did you want to? Yeah, I just just again a bit to the side. Uh, you know, one of the the Costa Rica, I think, in the sort of popular conscience of uh, the. El Norte, the North America, right. is a kind of uh, uh, a kind of utopia. I mean, a, a environmental utopia, right? Yeah. Where they've they've uh, moved away. You know, they, they I think ninety percent of their energy now is generated uh, via 
re renewables and and um, they have a massive ecotourism program there. They've also yeah. just and you're, you're just back from there, I, I, I believe, Jeff. And yeah. they've also just uh, elected uh, a kind of quintessentially neoliberal president. Absolutely. In, in Rodrigo Chavez, who who horribly, I I, I might add, has the same uh, 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 slogan as the current premier of the province of Ontario, the the deplorable, we're open for business. <laughs> yeah, always yeah. always a key, always a sign that things are going sideways. But but I have to say that the the, the and I just I just like to hear your general comments. Is first of all that Ch Chavez seems like a kind of oddly schizophrenic sort of character. I mean, he seems like a, like a good salesman on the one hand, yeah. um, you know, sort of talks the talk, open for business and all that kind of thing. But he's also at the same time saying, we're not gonna make any changes in, or, or make very few changes with regards to ecotourism and the commitment to renewables. And yeah. so it remains in a sense, a kind of model for the kinds of environmental, the environmental left, which yeah. is, you know, pretty uh, evident in Colombia with Petro, uh, Lula to a degree, um, uh, particularly as regards the Amazon forest. Right. So I, I just be interested, given you're yeah. just back from the place, yeah, uh, no, what your sort of observations are. Yeah, I can't really speak too much to to, to the Chavez administration. I I think that it what does strike me is that that, that sep what separates Costa Rica from from the other countries are are one that it didn't uh, experience civil a civil war in the 1970s and 1980s. There was an important civil war in 1948, which again would take us take us far afield to get to, in which basically, um, just to synthesize it, the left was soundly defeated uh, in that civil war. But what emerged from it was a social democracy, a social, a, a, a very sui generis social democracy uh, without a labor movement because the labor movement had been dominated by the left. So when the left gets crushed in 1948, so does the labor movement. But what emerges is this social democratic framework um, that basically works for a long time. And it's that framework that that continues to um, manage to, to sort of it's it's the the groundwork of the society that allows it to function um, somewhat decently for most people. I think uh, would be one way of putting it that it does have these things like you know basic rights to education and healthcare. Um, that at most exist on paper in the rest of the region. Uh, okay, that's very uh, that's very interesting. And I wanted to maybe like close out with um, uh, returning to your uh, earlier point where you drew a contrast between Carter administration and Reagan, just um, uh, in terms of um, uh, support for you know. Uh, uh, very vicious right-wing regimes. Um, I mean, I think one of the more recent interesting developments is that the, um, uh, you know, Biden, who is not a person of the left by any means, uh, uh, has uh, shifted American policy to some degree. Um, we said particularly in Brazil, where I think he's actually you know, much more friendly uh, towards uh, Lula than, uh, than Obama, let alone Donald Trump. Had been, uh, and uh, that uh, there is a sense in which you know um, 
um, the, the, there's a, uh, uh, been some shift. Uh, do you do you see that in Central America as well, particularly with reference to Honduras? Yeah, I I, I think so. I'm not really sure exactly uh, what what the U.S. has been up to in Honduras, but at least uh, on the surface, we seem to have uh, uh, amiable relations. And 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 I guess it, ironically, outside of Costa Rica, it's the only country that we can kind of trust uh, because the other countries in one level, you know, Guatemala, uh, Nicaragua, and El Salvador, one way or, in the le or, or another are, are corrupt or at the very least not, not countries that, um, that we can engage with in terms of issues that are, are of concern to us, like among other things, uh, you know, narcotics trafficking and 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 so on, and so um, so I, I so I do think it's it, it it is ironic after all these years we come back to a place that there's a moderate leftist that you know rather than overthrowing uh, we actually feel like we can can in some ways uh, coexist with, but I don't know too much of what's what what's going on there now in relationship to the U.S. I I mean she was dealt a rough hand. I mean it was a virtual. It was a virtual narco state, um, you know, thanks in, in no small part to U.S. policy. Uh, and she takes that over and you can't just transform it all that easy. So yeah. I'm not really sure she's got a tremendously difficult task for sure. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, lots of lots of challenges, uh, but at least a little bit of a hopeful note, which is I thought I thought a good way to perhaps uh, end this conversation. I want to th thank uh, once again Jeffrey Gould, uh, currently at the uh, uh, distinguished professor at the uh, Institute for Advanced Studies at Princeton, uh, uh, for uh, uh, being here uh, for a very enlightening uh, sort of survey of uh, the situation in uh, Central America, and also uh, Doug Bell uh, uh, for also joining us for this conversation. Thanks All so right. much. Thanks. Thank Thanks you very Jeff. much. Glad to do it again. Take care. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.